Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you lovelies. It is almost the weekend and I have tea in hand, ready to go, for a tale titled The Black Doctor from the 1908 series of Round the Fire Stories. Mates, this episode is part one of a two-parter that at first appears as a narrative that is a slice of life from the days of old, only to take a dark twist and then into another dark twist at the end. Oh yeah, this one is like riding a roller coaster that appears to finish only to crank up to crazy in the last leg of the adventure. Now, before we jump right on it, I want to thank those that support the show via Patreon. My awesome, my amazing, my Ode Night Tea Titans. Matthew J. Bauer, Baron of Chester. A man loved by many and respected by all, Baron of Chester is known for low-key but lavish parties, fantastical gastronomical legends, and a master brewer. One of his signature cocktails is called the Flathead, a combination of unique spices, pineapple juice, and of all things, his favorite spirit, vodka. Let's just say these parties always go off with a bang and guests are either left smiling or sleeping by the end of the night. And speaking of gastronomical leisures, the Baron of Chester knows his way around a cheesecake or two, and dare I say it, once you've had the crispy Chester cheesecakes, you'll not eat for the day. A man as rich as the food he serves. Maya, Baron of Regalston. Loved by her people, Maya, the Baron of Regalston, is a showstopper when it comes to introducing guests into a rich countryside. There is no one, for miles at least, that possesses the care and compassion that she has for wildlife in her lands. Owner of seven Regalston felines, known for their golden hair, small dainty paws, and long wavy tails, cats that are only found in the location of Regalston, due to the careful cat husbandry of the people there, and their care for the wildlife in their town. They say once you've seen a Regalston cat, you'll want to carry one away with you forever. The alternative, of course, is to move to Regalston, where you can join Maya in continuing their loving tradition, raising and caring for Regalston cats. And Solstra, Baron of Ridgeston, a town whose talents focuses on artwork, herbalism, and music. The populace that lives here are extremely well-educated in these spheres of knowledge and are well known throughout the lands for their excellence in being able to locate cures and create salves for many illnesses. During the year they celebrate the gifts that the forests in the lands provide them, and particularly for the Zeppelin P that is able to calm fevers and relax muscles in times of stress. Solstra, as the Baron of these lands, ensures that her people are always well looked after and that every single one of them is just as resourceful as she is. Thank all of you for your amazing support. As always, I can't wait for you to listen to this tale tonight. And if you get a chance to pitch your ideas on what's going on here and how the story will end, that would be awesome. You know how I love hearing from you lot. As for me, I've not read it in its entirety, so I'll be just as surprised as you are at the ending. Thank you, mates, for your amazing level of support. And now, my brilliant white tea warlords, I own cows, Havisher herders. 
The Havisher herders are specialists in cow husbandry, breeding cows like nobody's business, with the focus on healthy, fast-growing, and comfortable bovines. The lands of Havisher are unique in that the grass that grows there is packed with nutrients that supercharge the cow's strength, immune system, and breeding capabilities. At the supermarkets, there's always a request for Havisher cows, but unfortunately for most, the only way you'll obtain these goods is to go to Havishire yourself. They don't let their cows travel too far, and when they do, it's only on the glades of Havishire. And once you see one of their cows, you'll understand why they love them so, so much. Lee Bauer, Farmers from Glenhadell. Some lands have flourishing plants and herbs, huge sprawling grasslands or rivers that run for kilometers wide and long. But Glenadale is one such place whose wheat sustains countries. There is a unique landscape of hills and rolling mounds that grow the finest of wheat which one has ever tasted, used in almost every part of their cooking. And the medicinal properties that this wheat possesses is hard to compare to the wheat of other lands. Muscle recovery, stamina and endurance, collagen synthesis are just some of the qualities that this wheat from this land possesses. This wheat truly has it all. And Glenadale is known around the world for this reason. Mates, I hope you enjoyed your stories. I didn't want to give any part of today's tale away, but I also wanted to share what the landscape that these stories set in the 1908s tend to use. Thank you so much for your support, mates. Both of you are brilliant. And of course, my lovely Earl Grey Forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Grisanto, Paige Martini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, and Divided by Zero. Thank all of you for being amazing and being the blood that pumps through the veins of this podcast. Now, turn off the lights, get in the zone to relax, and let's listen to a tale of mystery and much, much more. Bishop's Crossing is a small village lying 10 miles in southwesterly direction from Liverpool. Here in the early 70s, there settled a doctor named Aloysius Lana. Nothing was known locally either of his antecedents, or of the reasons which had prompted him to come to this Lancashire hamlet. Two facts only were certain about him. The one that he had gained his medical qualifications with some distinction at Glasgow. The other, that he came undoubtedly of a tropical race, and was so dark that he might almost have had a strain of the Indian in his composition. His predominant features were, however, European, and he possessed a stately curtsy and carriage which suggested a Spanish extraction, a swarthy skin, raven black hair, and dark sparkling eyes under a pair of heavily tufted brows made a strange contrast to the flaxen or chestnut rustics of England and the newcomer was soon known as the Black Doctor of Bishop Crossing. At first, it was a term of ridicule and reproach. As the years went on, it became a title of honor, which was familiar to the whole countryside, and extended far beyond the narrow confines of the village. For the newcomer proved himself to be a capable surgeon and an accomplished physician. The practice of the district had been in the lands of Edward Rowe, the son of Sir William Rowe, the Liverpool consultant, but he had not inherited the talents of his father, and Dr. Lana, with his advantages of presence and of manner, soon beat him out of the field. 
Dr. Lana's social success was as rapid as his professionalism. A remarkable surgical cure in the case of the Hon James Lowry, the second son of Lord Belton, was the means of introducing him to the country society, where he became a favourite through the charm of his conversation and the elegance of his manners. An absence of antecedents and of relatives is sometimes an aid rather than an impediment to social advancement, and the distinguished individuality of the handsome doctor was its own recommendation. His patient had one fault, and one fault only, to find him. He appeared to be a confirmed bachelor. This was the more remarkable since the house which he occupied was a large one, and it was known that his success in practice had enabled him to save considerable sums. At first, the local matchmakers were continually coupling his name with one, or other, of the eligible ladies. But as years passed and Dr. Lana remained unmarried, it came to be generally understood. It was in order to escape the consequences of an early misalliance that he had buried himself at Bishop's Crossing. And then, just as the matchmakers had finally given up in despair, his engagement was suddenly announced to Miss Frances Morton of Leigh Hall. Miss Morton was a young lady who was well known upon the countryside, her father, James Halden Morton, having been the squire of Bishop's Crossing. Both her parents were, however, dead, and she lived with her only brother, Arthur Morton, who had inherited the family estate. In person, Miss Morton was tall and stately, and she was famous for her quick, impetuous nature and for her strength of character. She met Dr. Lana at a garden party, and a friendship, which quickly ripened into love, sprang up between them. Nothing could exceed their devotion to each other. There was some discrepancy in age, he being 37 and she 24, but, save in that one respect, there was no possible objection to be found with the match. The engagement was in February, and it was arranged that the marriage should take place in August. Upon the 3rd of June, Dr. Lana received a letter from abroad. In a small village, the postmaster is also in a position to be the gossip master, and Mr. Bankley, of Bishop's Crossing, had many of the secrets of his neighbours in his possession. Of this particular letter, he remarked only that it was in the curious envelope that it was in a man's handwriting, and that the postscript was Buenos Aires, and the stamp of the Argentina Republic. It was the first letter which he had ever known Dr. Lana to have from abroad, and this was the reason why his attention was particularly called to it before he handed it to the local postman. It was delivered by the evening delivery of that date. Next morning, that is upon the 4th of June, Dr. Lana called upon Miss Morton, and a long interview followed, from which she was observed to return in a state of great agitation. Miss Morton remained in her room all that day, and her maid found her several times in tears. In the course of a week, it was an open secret to the whole village that the engagement was at an end, that Dr. Lana had behaved shamefully to the young lady, and that Arthur Morton, her brother, was talking of horsewhipping him. In what particular respect the doctor had behaved badly was unknown. Some surmised one thing and some another, but it was observed and taken as the obvious sign of a guilty conscience that he would go for miles round rather than pass the windows of Leigh Hall, and that he gave up attending morning service upon Sundays where he might have met the young lady. There was an advertisement also in the Lancet 
as to the sale of a practice which mentioned no names, but which was thought by some to refer to Bishop Crossing, and to mean that Dr. Lana was thinking of abandoning the scene of his success. Such was the position of affairs when, upon the evening of Monday, June 21st, there came a fresh development which changed what had been a mere village scandal into a tragedy which arrested the attention of the whole nation. Some details is necessary to cause the facts of that evening to present their full significance. The sole occupant of the doctor's house were his housekeepers, an elderly and most respectable woman named Martha Woods, and the young servant Mary Pilling. The coachman and the surgery boy slept out. It was the custom of the doctor to sit at night in his study, which was next to the surgery in the wing of the house which was farthest from the servants' quarters. This side of the house had a door of its own for the convenience of patients, so that it was possible for the doctor to admit and receive a visitor there without the knowledge of anyone. As a matter of fact, when patients came late, it was quite usual for him to let them in and out by the surgery entrance, for the maid and the housekeeper were in the habit of retiring early. On this particular night, Martha Woods went into the doctor's study at half past nine and found himself writing at his desk. She bade him good night, sent the maid to bed, and then occupied himself until a quarter to eleven in household matters. It was striking eleven upon the whole clock when she went to her own room. She had been there about a quarter of an hour or twenty minutes when she heard a cry or a call, which appeared to come from within the house. She waited some time, but it was not repeated. Much alarmed, for the sound was loud and urgent, she put on a dressing gown and ran at the top of her speed to the doctor's study. Who's there? cried a voice, and she tapped at the door. I am here, sir, Mrs. Woods. I beg you that you will leave me in peace. Go back to your room this instant, cried the voice, which was to the best of her belief that of her master. The tone was so harsh and so unlike her master's usual manner that she was surprised and hurt. I thought I heard you calling, sir, she explained, but no answer was given to her. Mrs. Woods looked at the clock as she returned to her room, and it was then half past eleven. At some period between eleven and twelve, she could not be positive as to the exact hour, a patient called upon the doctor and was unable to get any reply from him. This late visitor was Mrs. Madding, the wife of the village grocer who was dangerously ill of typhoid fever. Dr. Lana had asked her to look in for the last thing in that night and let him know how her husband was progressing. She observed that the light was burning in the study, but having knocked several times at the surgery door without response, she concluded that the doctor had been called out, so returned home. There is a short, winding drive with a lamp at the end of it leading down from the house to the road. As Miss Madding emerged from the gate, a man was coming along the footpath, Thinking that it might be Dr. Lana returning from some professional visit, she waited for him, and was surprised to see that it was Mr. Arthur Morton, the young squire. In the light of the lamp, she observed that his manner was excited, and that he carried in his hand a heavy hunting crop. He was turning in at the gate when she addressed him. The doctor is not in, sir, said she. How do you know that? he asked harshly. I have been to the surgery door, sir. I see a light, said the young squire, looking up the drive. That is his study, is it not? 
Yes, sir, but I am sure that he is out. Well, he must come in again, said young Morton, while Mrs. Madding went upon her homeward way. At three o'clock that morning, her husband suffered a sharp relapse, and she was so alarmed by his symptoms that she determined to call the doctor without delay. As she passed through the gate, she was surprised to see someone lurking among the laurel bushes. It was certainly a man, and to the best of her belief, Mr. Arthur Morton. Preoccupied with her own troubles, she gave no particular attention to the incident, but hurried on upon her errand. When she reached the house, she perceived to her surprise that the light was still burning in the study. She therefore tapped at the surgery door. There was no answer. She repeated the knocking several times without effect. It appeared to her to be unlikely that the doctor would either go to bed or go out leaving so brilliant a light behind him. And it struck Mrs. Madding that it was possible that he might have dropped asleep in his chair. She tapped at the study window, therefore, but without result. Then, finding that there was an opening between the curtain and the woodwork, she looked through. The small room was brilliantly lighted from a large lamp at the central table, which was littered with the doctor's books and instruments. No one was visible, nor did she see anything unusual except that in the further shadow thrown by the table, a dingy white glove was lying upon the carpet. And then suddenly, as her eyes became more accustomed to the light, a boot emerged from the other side of the shadow, and she realized with a thrill of horror that what she had taken to be a glove was the hand of a man, who was prostrate upon the floor. Understanding that something terrible had occurred, she rang at the front door, roused Mrs. Woods, the housekeeper, and the two women made their way into the study, having first dispatched the maid servant to the police station. At the side of the table, away from the window, Dr. Lana was discovered stretched upon his back and quite dead. It was evident that he had been subject to violence, for one of his eyes was blackened, and there were marks of bruises about his face and neck. A slight thickening and swelling of his features appeared to suggest that the cause of his death had been strangulation. He was dressed in his usual professional clothes, but wore cloth slippers, the soles of which were perfectly clean. The carpet was marked all over, especially on the side of the door, with traces of dirty boots, which were presumably left by the murderer. It was evident that someone had entered by the surgery door, had killed the doctor, and had then made his escape unseen. That the assailant was a man was certain, from the size of the footprints and from the nature of the injuries. But beyond that point, the police found it very difficult to go. There were no signs of robbery, and the doctor's gold watch was safe in his pocket. He kept a heavy cash box in the room, and this was discovered to be locked but empty. Mrs. Woods had an impression that a large sum was usually kept there, but the doctor had paid a heavy corn bill in cash only that very day, and it was conjectured that it was to this and not to a robber that the emptiness of the box was due. One thing in the room was missing, but that one thing was suggestive. The portrait of Miss Morton, which had always stood upon the side table, had been taken from its frame and carried off. Mrs. Wood had observed it there when she waited upon her employee that evening, and now it was gone. On the other hand, there was picked up from the floor a green eye patch, which the housekeeper could not remember to have seen before. Such a patch might, however, be in the possession of a doctor, 
and there was nothing to indicate that it was in any way connected with the crime. Suspicion could only turn in one direction, and Arthur Morton, the young squire, was immediately arrested. The evidence against him was circumstantial, but damning. He was devoted to his sister, and it was shown that since the rupture between her and Dr. Lana, he had been heard again and again to express himself in the most vindictive terms towards her former lover. He had, as stated, been seen somewhere about 11 o'clock entering the doctor's drive with a hunting crop in his hand. He had then, according to the theory of the police, broken in upon the doctor, whose exclamation of fear or of anger had been loud enough to attract the attention of Mrs. Woods. When Mrs. Woods descended, Dr. Lana had made up his mind to talk it over with his visitor, and had therefore sent his housekeeper back to her room. The conversation had lasted a long time, had become more and more fiery, and had ended by a personal struggle in which the doctor lost his life. The fact revealed by a post-mortem that his heart was much diseased, an ailment quite unsuspected during his life, would make it possible that death might in his case ensue from injuries which would not be fatal to a healthy man. Arthur Morton had then removed his sister's photograph and had made his way homeward, stepping aside into the laurel bushes to avoid Mrs. Madding at the gate. This was the theory of the prosecution, and the case which they presented was a formidable one. On the other hand, there were some strong points for the defense. Morton was high-spirited and impetuous like his sister, but he was respected and liked by everyone, and his frank and honest nature seemed to be incapable of such a crime. His own explanation was that he was anxious to have a conversation with Dr. Lana about some urgent family matters. From first to last, he refused to even mention the name of his sister. He did not attempt to deny that his conversation would probably have been of an unpleasant nature. He had heard from a patient that the doctor was out, and he therefore waited until about three in the morning for his return. But as he had seen nothing of him up to the hour, he had given it up and returned home. As to his death, he knew no more about it than the constable who arrested him. He had formerly been an intimate friend of the deceased man, but circumstances which he would prefer not to mention had brought about a change in his sentiments. There were several facts which supported his innocence. It was certain that Dr. Lana was alive and in his study at half past 11 o'clock. Mrs. Woods was prepared to swear that it was at that hour that she had heard his voice. The friends of the prisoner contended that it was probable that at that time, Dr. Lana was not alone. The sound which had originally attracted the attention of the housekeeper and her master's unusual impatience that she should leave him in peace seemed to point to that. If this were so, then it appeared to be probable that he had met his end between the moment when the housekeeper heard his voice and the time when Mrs. Madding made her first call and found it impossible to attract his attention. But if this were the time of his death, then it was certain that Mr. Arthur Morton could not be guilty, as it was after this that she had met the young squire at the gate. If this hypothesis were correct, and someone was with Dr. Lana before Mrs. Madding met Mr. Arthur Morton, then who was this someone? And what motives had he for wishing evil to the doctor? It was universally admitted 
that if the friends of the accused could throw light upon this, they would have gone a long way towards establishing his innocence. But in the meanwhile, it was open to the public to say, as they did say, that there was no proof that anyone had been there at all except the young squire. While, on the other hand, there was ample proof that his motives in going were of a sinister kind. When Mrs. Madding called, the doctor might have retired to his room, or he might, as she thought at the time, have gone out and returned afterwards to find Mr. Arthur Morton waiting for him. Some of the supporters of the accused laid stress upon the fact that the photograph of his sister Frances, which had been removed from the doctor's room, had not been found in her brother's possession. This argument, however, did not count for much, as he had ample time before his arrest to burn it or destroy it. As to the only positive evidence in the case, the muddy footprints upon the floor, they were so blurred by the softness of the carpet that it was impossible to make any trustworthy deduction from them. The most that could be said was that their appearance was not inconsistent with the theory that they were made by the accused, and it was further shown that his boots were very muddy upon that night. There had been a heavy shower in the afternoon, and all boots were probably in the same condition. Such is a bold statement of the singular and romantic series of events which centred public attention upon this Lancashire tragedy. The unknown origin of the Doctor, his curious and distinguished personality, the position of the man who was accused of the murder, and the love affair which had preceded the crime, all combined to make the affair one of those dramas which absorbed the whole interest of a nation. Throughout the Three Kingdoms, men discussed the case of the Black Doctor of Bishop's Crossing, and many were the theories put forward to explain the facts, but it may safely be said that among them all there was not one which prepared the minds of the public for the extraordinary sequel, which caused so much excitement upon the first day of the trial and came to a climax upon the second. The long files of the Lancaster Weekly, with their report of the case, lie before me as I write, but I must content myself with the synopsis of the case up to the point when, upon the evening of the first day, the evidence of Miss Frances Morton threw a singular light upon the case. Mr. Pollock Carr, the counsel for the prosecution, had marshaled his facts with his usual skill, and as the day wore on, it became more and more evident which Mr. Humphrey, who had been retained for the defence, had before him. Several witnesses were put up to swear to the interpret expressions, which the young squire had been heard to utter about the doctor, and the fiery manner in which he resented the alleged ill-treatment of his sister. Mrs. Madding repeated her evidence as to the visit which had been paid late at night by the prisoner to the deceased, and it was shown by another witness that the prisoner was aware that the doctor was in the habit of sitting alone in this isolated wing of the house, and that he had chosen this very late hour to call because he knew that his victim would then be at his mercy. A servant at the squire's house was compelled to admit that he had heard his master return about three that morning, which corroborated Mrs. Madding's statement that she had seen him among the laurel bushes near the gate upon the occasion of her second visit. The muddy boots and the alleged similarity in the footprints were duly dwelt upon, and it was felt when the case for the prosecution had been presented that. However circumstantial it might be, it was nonetheless so complete and so convincing that the fate of the prisoner was sealed, unless something quite unexpected 
should be disclosed by the defense. It was three o'clock when the prosecution closed, at half past four when the court rose, that a new and unlooked for development had occurred. I extract the evidence, or part of it, from the journal which I have already mentioned, omitting the preliminary observations of the counsel. Considerable sensation was caused in the crowded court when the first witness called the defense proved to be Miss Frances Morton, the sister of the prisoner. Our readers will remember that the young lady had been engaged to Dr. Lana and that it was his anger over the sudden termination of his engagement which was thought to have driven her brother to the preparation of this crime. Miss Morton had not, however, been directly implicated in the case in any way, either at the inquest or at the police court proceedings, and her appearance as the leading witness for the defense came as a surprise upon the public. Miss Frances Morton, who was a tall and handsome brunette, gave her evidence in a low but clear voice, though it was evident throughout that she was suffering from extreme emotion. She alluded to her engagement to the doctor, touched briefly upon its termination, which was due, she said, to personal matters connected with his family, and surprised the court by asserting that she had always considered her brother's resentment to be unreasonable and intemperate. In answer to a direct question from her counsel, she replied that she did not feel that she had any grievance whatsoever against Dr. Lana, and that in her opinion, he had acted in a perfectly honorable manner. Her brother, on an insufficient knowledge of the facts, had taken another view, and she was compelled to acknowledge that, in spite of her entreaties, he had uttered threats of personal violence against the doctor and had, upon the evening of the tragedy, announced his intention of having it out with him. She had done her best to bring him to a more reasonable frame of mind, but he was very headstrong where his emotions or prejudices were concerned. Up to this point, the young lady's evidence had appeared to make against the prisoner rather than in his favour. The questions of her counsel, however, soon put a very different light upon the matter, and disclosed an unexpected line of defence. The dialogue is as follows. Mr. Humphrey, do you believe your brother to be guilty of this crime? The judge, I cannot permit that question, Mr. Humphrey. We are here to decide upon questions of fact, not of belief. Mr. Humphrey, do you know that your brother is not guilty of the death of Dr. Lana? Miss Morton, yes. Mr. Humphrey, how do you know it? Miss Morton, because Dr. Lana is not dead. There followed a prolonged sensation in court, which interrupted the cross-examination of the witness. Mr. Humphrey, and how do you know, Miss Morton, that Dr. Lana is not dead? Miss Morton, because I have received a letter from him since that day of his supposed death. Mr. Humphrey, have you this letter? Miss Morton, yes, but I should prefer not to show it. Mr. Humphrey, have you the envelope? Miss Morton, yes, it is here. Mr. Humphrey, what is the postmark? Miss Morton, Liverpool. Mr. Humphrey, and the date? Miss Morton, June the 22nd. Mr. Humphrey, that being the day after his alleged death, are you prepared to swear to this handwriting? 
Miss Morton? Miss Morton. Certainly. Mr. Humphrey, I am prepared to call six other witnesses, my lord, to justify that this letter is in the writing of Dr. Lana. The judge. Then you must call them tomorrow. Mr. Paul Lock Carr, counsel for the prosecution. In the meantime, my lord, we claim possession of this document so that we may obtain expert evidence as to how far it is an imitation of the handwriting of the gentleman whom we still confidently assert to be deceased. I need not point out that the theory so unexpectedly sprung upon us may prove to be a very obvious device adopted by the friend of the prisoner in order to divert this inquiry. I would draw attention to the fact that the young lady must, according to her own account, have possessed this letter during the proceedings at the inquest and at the police court. She desires us to believe that she permitted these to proceed, although she held it in her pocket evidence which would at any moment have brought them to an end. Mr. Humphrey, can you explain this, Miss Morton? Miss Morton, Dr. Lana desired his secret to be preserved. Mr. Porlock Carr, then why have you made this public? Miss Morton, to save my brother. The murmur of sympathy broke out in the court, which was instantly suppressed by the judge. The judge, admitting this line of defense, it lies with you, Mr. Humphrey, to throw a light upon who this man is, whose body has been recognized by so many friends and patients of Dr. Lana as being that of the doctor himself. A juryman. Has anyone up to now expressed any doubt about the matter? Mr. Pollock Carr. Not to my knowledge. Mr. Humphrey. We hope to make the matter clear. The judge. Then the court adjourned until tomorrow. This new development of the case excited the utmost interest among the general public. Press comment was prevented by the fact that the trial was still undecided, but the question was everywhere argued as to how far there could be truth in Miss Morton's declaration, and how far it might be a daring ruse for the purpose of saving her brother. The obvious dilemma in which the missing doctor stood was that if by any extraordinary chance he was not dead, then he must be held responsible for the death of this unknown man, who resembled him so exactly, and who was found in his study. This letter, which Miss Morton refused to produce, was possibly a confession of guilt, and she might find herself in the terrible position of only being able to save her brother from the gallows by the sacrifice of her former lover. The court next morning was crammed to overflowing, and a murmur of excitement passed over it when Mr. Humphrey was observed to enter in a state of emotion which even his trained nerves could not conceal and to confer with the opposing counsel. A few hurried words, words which left a look of amazement upon Mr. Pollock Carr's face, passed between them, and then the counsel for the defense, addressing the judge, announced that, with the consent of the prosecution, the young lady who had given evidence upon the sitting before would not be recalled. And that, my lovelies, is the little cliffhanger for next week. We have a dead doctor, a mortified lover, and a man who may or may not be the killer. What are your thoughts, mates? Do you think Arthur killed him? We'll find out in part two of The Black Doctor next week. Thank you all for listening, mates. Stay safe, stay brilliant, and as always, till next we meet.